And we're looking at, last week we looked at the opening section of the first chapter, and and now we're going to conclude the first chapter of Acts. Um, And we start in verse 12. And it says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living amongst us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. All right, so it's quite a lot in that. We're going to try and unpack it as best we can um, in the next half hour or so and, um, and try and get into what is going on, what's actually happening in this passage. It's quite, last week, we, like we say, we were looking at the ascension of Jesus. So Jesus has taken him up to the Mount of Olives and then he has ascended into heaven. He is gone. Quite a spectacle, I'm sure you can imagine. And the disciples are all stood around, kind of going, what just happened? Some sort of like David Blaine trick. And they're kind of going, where on earth has he gone? And they're stood, gazing up into the sky. And these angels come along and go, what are you looking at there for? That's where Jesus is going to come back from. Bit of a strange conversation. We unpicked that a little bit last week. And so they head back, and that's where they start. And they head back um, to Jerusalem. It says, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is quite significant. It rocks up in the Old Testament a little bit, very significant around David. Um, but particularly around the story of Jesus, it's quite significant. This is where Jesus kind of set up camp during his final week in Jerusalem. He would stay around the Mount of Olives. It's, um, before he entered into the city, that's where he spoke out judgment on the city of Jerusalem. Then he went in, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. That's where he showed up again afterwards. This is where he then leaves and ascends into heaven. And this is where, when we look in Revelation, this is where he comes back to. It's quite a scene setter it kind of this is where it starts and this is where it ends and this is where the next bit starts and this is where it's headed 
So it's, um, it's an important place. And they, so they're heading back to Jerusalem. They go back to Jerusalem, and, they've, and they're from the Mount of Olives. And it says this phrase, a Sabbath day walk from the city. Which is an interesting phrase. It's a particularly interesting phrase because Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. So what do they know about Sabbath day walks? Because they don't even adhere to the Sabbath. And so I looked at this and I was kind of, why... Why is this important? Why do we need to know this? Is it just a little bit of information which Luke's thrown out there? He's quite good on detail, generally. You know, just kind of put lots of detail in, and maybe it's just that. But actually, this whole idea of a Sabbath day walk comes from Exodus. It comes from when the Israelites were in the wilderness, and they set up camp, a million of them, and they set up camp, and at the center of this camp, or in this camp was this um, tabernacle, was this tent where the presence of God would reside. And wherever you lived in relation to this tabernacle, so when you had a rest day, everyone would go once a year or at whatever point, and that's where they would gather, this place where God was in the midst of his people. God was with his people. The presence of God resided with his people. And a Sabbath day walk was... However far it was from your tent to that tabernacle. So if you were a kilometre away, the Sabbath day walk was a kilometre. If you were half a kilometre away, the Sabbath day walk was half a kilometre. If you were 100 yards away, the Sabbath day walk for you was 100 yards. Because all you needed to do on that day of rest was exist in the presence of God. And it's this great leveller. It wasn't about class or who was the closest and you were the most important or whatever. However far away you were, that was your distance that you were able to walk on the Sabbath. Because God was with you. And you came to be together with your whole community in the presence of God. And a Sabbath walk was however far it took you. So a Sabbath walk for us is about a quarter to a third of a mile. A Sabbath walk for some of you is more like 10 miles or 15 miles. It's however far you are from that place where you come together with your community to be in the presence of God. And I wonder if Luke's pointing at something of this. Well, Jesus has left them. But Jesus left them probably with some of the promises ringing his ears of, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you. My spirit will be with you. And this idea that the presence of God exists with them and amongst them and wherever they join in as community, that they're not abandoned by God, but how they relate with God is just going to be different from now. And so there's this idea of this Sabbath day walk from the city. And what had happened was the Jewish community had made this quite legalistic. So they all sorts of studies into well then how far are you allowed to walk on the Sabbath? And they decided that you could walk about a kilometer. And so if you could, if you could walk a kilometer then that was a Sabbath day walk but you weren't allowed to walk more than that. And they made it quite a legalistic rules-based thing which missed the point of the original 
law, which was this great leveler. It wasn't this thing that was supposed to exclude or restrict or whatever. It was this great leveler where you were all a Sabbath day walk from the presence of God. Even today, in the Jewish communities, there are people who may insist that they have to buy a house within a kilometer of the synagogue because that's how far they're allowed to travel on the Sabbath. Made it quite this, this quite legalistic thing. And I think they missed the point. And what's really interesting is there, there's all sorts of debates on the internet and Bible studies and theologians and whatever, because the problem is from where they were to Jerusalem was actually two kilometers. And people are going, oh yeah, but it means from the foot of the Mount of Olives, so that's only a kilometer, and it takes them a kilometer to get up, and they go, well, it doesn't mean from the, actually it means to the foot, and so that's only a kilometer, because it's about a kilometer to the foot, then about a kilometer up. And then, and they get all these arguments, because they ha- it has to be right, because the Bible has to be right, it has to be, but they're reading it the wrong way. It's not about the legalistic idea of a Sabbath day walk. It's about the concept that we're all within reach of the presence of God. And this is what Luke is alluding to in this passage. And then it says, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. I don't know if this is the same room where they, in the upper room, where they shared bread and wine with Jesus, where they broke bread together, where they celebrated um, the Passover together. But it certainly evokes that image. Again, this most intimate of moments they had with Jesus, together, in the presence of, with God. And this whole idea that's coming through is this, whilst Jesus has gone, maybe they've never been closer. We'll keep moving on. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Eleven of them, the remaining disciples, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And what you see is this community developing. And it's not a community formed along standard lines that were expected of a community within the Jewish community or the Roman Empire at that time, but there's a real kind of togetherness, and it doesn't matter about your status or your standing, and there's the, the apostles there, the disciples there, and there's the, the women, and there's the brothers of Jesus, and there's this kind of gathering of different people, and they're all together, and it says they're together constantly in prayer, and that might sound like they're being really holy, but to me it reads like they're being really desperate. They're kind of going, oh please, what is going on? Where have you gone? What's happening here? What's about to happen? Because you said a bunch of stuff that we have not got a clue what you were talking about, and now you said that we need to go and do this, and we're supposed to be able to do the same things as you, we don't understand, and we don't know what we're waiting for, and you've told us to wait, but we're not quite sure what we're waiting for, and I think they're just praying out of pure confusion and desperation, and going, Please, God, tell us what's supposed to happen. Because people are hunting them down at this point as well. Jesus wasn't this, you know, person of favor in their community at this point. 
The followers of Jesus are somewhat of a target, and they're hiding out in this room, and they're probably scared for their lives, and they're confused about what on earth Jesus was talking about. And they don't stop praying. Not because they're so holy. And can you imagine what, how amazing it must have been to be in those prayer meetings? No, I imagine they were terrified and confused and baffled by the whole thing. He says, in those days, Peter stood up amongst the believers, a group numbering about 120. This group just keeps growing, doesn't it? But this is the beginning. These 120 That's where this whole thing starts. 120 people, afraid for their lives, quite confused, trying to figure out what's going on. And from that, we see the church today, across the world, millions and millions of people working out what it means to follow the teachings and the life of Jesus, working out what it means to live in relationship with God through Jesus, figuring out what it means to be filled and to be inspired and to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It starts with 120. And Peter addresses them because Peter's the vocal one. Peter's the self-appointed leader at this point. He's the guy. Do you remember this is the guy that denied Jesus at his crucifixion. This is a guy who was impulsive. This is a guy who got it wrong and again and again and again and again. And now he's a self-appointed leader of this group saying, I know what we need to do, people. And he stands up and he addresses them, 120 of them. And he says, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Now, this is interesting. This whole passage, this whole section is interesting now, what Peter talks about. We're going to come on to that. But actually, I can't quite decide how they feel about Judas at this point. Because sometimes, you know, you could read this as a kind of a very sort of conciliatory. Well, you know, he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Like, you know, let's not be too hard on him. Yeah, he messed up. Or, yeah, maybe he didn't. Or who knows what happened. But they might. Other times, it sounds like they're really angry with him. And we'll see that as we go through. And I imagine there's a bit of both. They shared life with this guy. They've been through a lot with this guy. And then he has betrayed Jesus. And not just betrayed Jesus. They probably feel, all the disciples probably feel like he's betrayed them as well. But he's their brother. And there's probably a whole conflict of emotions going on. I don't think Peter's just giving a factual recap of what's happened. I think he's trying to work out some of his emotions, some of his frustration, some of his anger and rage, and some of his love for Judas. And I think there's all those things going on in this passage. She says he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And then Luke adds in this little bit in parenthesis where he says, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. I don't know. I don't know why we particularly need to know that, but it's this sort of, you can already see this sort of legend developing this sort of story 
gossip that's kind of flying around amongst people. And did you hear this is what he did? And did you hear this is what he did? And actually, you know, if you read Matthew's account, there's a slightly different version of what happened. And um, but you get this idea of this sort of this sort of legend and gossip and chatter all bouncing around. And Luke puts this in this sort of gruesome ending that befalls Judas. And his story carries on this because the field which he's bought is called Field of Blood. And then Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, that there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. This is. This is a bit odd, to be honest with you. So. May his place be deserted, that there be no one to dwell in it, is from Psalm 69. Which is this psalm of lament by David about the people who are persecuting him and may God curse them and punish them. And part of the curse is that his place will be deserted and no one will dwell in it. And then the second bit, and may another take his place of leadership, is from Psalm 109. And again, it's another lament about persecution and people being mean to him and attacking him and saying horrible things about him. And, and then it's another curse that's kind of spoken out and may someone else take his place of leadership. And what Peter has done is taken this bit part of a verse from Psalm 69 and another bit part of a verse from Psalm 109 and put them together and said, there you go, God says. It's a little bit weird, isn't it? I mean, it's, I don't know how how else to describe it other than bad theology. It's really bad theology. You know, if, well, We'll skip on. So he says, therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us this whole time, the Lord Jesus living among us. He has taken these two bit part verses, glued them together, and gone, therefore, this is what God's saying to us. And I'll be honest, if somebody came to me and said, I want to talk to you about what I feel God's saying to me, because I've got this half verse from Isaiah chapter 32, and I've got this half verse from Proverbs chapter 4, and if you put them together, it says I need to do this thing. I'd be going, um, I don't know if that's God or just you trying to make the Bible say something you want it to say. It's like, I don't, like, it's really bad theology, isn't it? Like, we can't just take a bit of here out of context and a bit here out of context and glue them together and go, therefore, people, that God clearly says, I mean, that's quite a dangerous path to go down. If we're just going to start, why, why, you know, they're not even full verses, they're just snippets of verses. I mean, you really could, can, get the Bible to say anything you want it to say if we're going to take that approach to our theology. And these guys are the ones that Jesus has kind of left commissioned going, take this thing and run with it. And the first thing they do is kind of get their scrolls out or whatever or remember their verses and kind of go, oh, well, this half verse and this half verse means that we definitely need to choose somebody who's been with us the whole time since this whole thing began. Seems a little bit odd, but they see, let's see what they do about that. So he says, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. 
So they're going to say, it has to be somebody who's been with us from the beginning. Now, I think maybe this is sort of a term of, a turn of phrase to kind of go, someone who was with us from his baptism to his resurrection. Because most of these guys weren't there at his baptism, if any of them. So are they setting a higher standard to whoever this next person is going to be than they even have themselves? As this kind of a, it could sound a little bit like exclusivity, or it has to be one of the in people. But actually, I think that's probably something of a turn of phrase. Because I think what's really important about these apostles is that they were witnesses to what Jesus had said and done. They were witnesses. They were able to tell the stories, not just from hearsay, second-hand, third-hand, fourth-hand, but witnesses, people who were stood there and saw the miracles, people who were sat there and listened to his teaching, people who witnessed his crucifixion and saw him after his resurrection, who could say, I know because I ate with him, because I sat and listened with him after his resurrection, because I saw his ascension. Someone who can give witness to what Jesus did. And I think what they're saying is, it can't just be somebody who's kind of heard recently. This needs to be somebody who can speak with authority about what they have seen and what they have heard. So they carry on. It says, so they nominated two men. Joseph, called Barsabas, who also known as Justice. So there's someone with a bit of an identity crisis there, because they've got three names, and we're not quite sure which is their preferred one. And Matthias, who clearly knows who he is. That's very simple. So we've got this guy who's kind of a little bit confused about who he is, and Matthias. And um, so then they prayed, and they go, Oh, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs, which has a bit of an edge to it, doesn't it? That guy's gone. Good riddance. He's gone where he deserves. So we need to replace someone else. So it kind of just, just feels like there's a bit of an edge to that. So, how did they sort this out? How did they hear God? They cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. So they pick a couple of random snippets of verses from different chapters in the scriptures, and they glue them together, and they go, God says we need to have someone else, so let's cast lots to see what God wants. This is not how to hear God, people. <laughs> Do not be coming to me saying, well, you know, I was chatting with some of these other guys in reality, and we decided that someone should go out and witness to this particular nation, so we played highest card. And it turns out, I got the ace of spades. So I'm off. That's not how to hear God. This is terrible theology. So why am I talking about that? Why does that matter? It matters because, you know, sometimes when we, when we read the scriptures, we kind of can approach it with this idea that, well, if it's in the Bible, it must be good. It must be right. And it can lead us to kind of elevating these apostles. Oh, they are the founders of the church. They're the most spiritual, holy men that ever lived. These are the guys... Can you imagine? And look, I've been in conversations with people going, can you imagine what it was like to be in that early church? Oh, wouldn't that have been amazing? Just what we need to do is we need to get back to what they were like. Well, maybe not. Unless we're going to be drawing lots to make decisions and we're going to be just, you know, cutting and pasting verses together. to do, Like, 
maybe they didn't get everything right. And what we'll see as we go through the book of Acts is maybe they didn't get everything right. And yet, God used them. Because they add Matthias to their number, and keep in mind, right at the beginning of Acts, we are having this story about how, the, how this early church was formed, and one of the first things, it tells about the ascension, and the first thing they tell us about is Matthias being chosen as the 12th apostle added to their number. I cannot wait to see what Matthias goes on to do in forming the early church. But unfortunately, we're going to have to wait. We're going to have to wait until we meet Matthias in heaven because nothing else is mentioned for the rest of Acts. He does not show up one more time. We hear nothing about this fabulous appointment. Nothing. Not a thing. Not a mention. Not even a passing reference of, and Matthias was watching. Nothing. He does nothing that is deemed worth talking about in the rest of the book of Acts. Now, that doesn't mean per se that it's the wrong decision, but it's hardly world-changing. Maybe they got it wrong. Maybe they got it wrong. You see, these... Disciples, if you remember, back to when we studied Mark, they were nobodies. They were kids working in the family business, trying to scrape by. They were nobodies. They weren't the gifted or the elite or the smart or the intelligent or the powerful or the whatever else. They weren't the beautiful and the good. They were just the nobodies. And God uses nobodies. And look, it would be ridiculous for us, to, for us to assume that they suddenly started getting everything right because throughout their time as disciples of Jesus, what we saw again and again and again as we went through Mark is they continually missed the point. They continually got it wrong. They profoundly missed the point. Even right at the beginning of Acts, they kind of chat to Jesus and go, okay, Jesus, so he's now the time. Now the time. You're going to just blitz all our enemies and you're going to establish a kingdom and this is it. We're going to win now. We'll all be cabinet members in your cabinet of power that's going to rule the world. And Jesus is going, no, no, really not. That's not. Do you, you don't, do you know I don't feel like you've been listening? Like, that's not how this is going to be. This isn't about power and strength. This is about, we're not going to win this by victory and power and might. We're going to win this by dying. This kingdom's going to come about by losing and failure and weakness. This kingdom isn't like that. And if we're here because we want to win, we're kind of missing the point of the kingdom. The disciples get stuff wrong. And I wonder if even right at the beginning they've got this wrong. And they make mistakes. They're the nobodies and they're not good enough. And yet, they are the ones God uses to establish his church, which now spans the globe. And you might be here thinking, yeah, yeah, no, that's really good, but God could never use me. Well, the suggestion would be that he can. Because he used these losers and not good enoughs and screw-ups. So he could use you too. 
And you might be thinking, yeah, yeah, but you know what? Like, I, I was all in for God at one point, but then I just that thing happened and I made a really bad mistake and I just feel like I got everything wrong and I ruined everything and I messed everything up and it's all gone badly wrong, so now God can't use me. Well, you know what? It seems like he can because these guys kept screwing up and getting it wrong and God continued to use them powerfully. We still get stuff wrong. David Keane, who leads St. James and St. Peter's, his, um, writes a blog, and his blog has this title, has this little thing at the top of it, which says, 20%, 25% of what I say is wrong, the problem is I don't know which 25%. And that is true for all preachers, teachers, church leaders. Like, we get stuff wrong. We get stuff wrong. And the reality, when we're working in the kingdom, you know, sometimes you can have those moments in the sweet spot and everything you say kind of happens and it all works and whatever, and then other times you just feel like you're just messing everything up. And the reality is, you know, it feels like sometimes God does stuff despite us rather than because of us. Like somehow God seems to still work it for good even when we make the biggest mistakes. <laughs> We can be getting it all wrong and God's still saving people. God's still changing lives. God's still healing people. God's still doing the miracles. God's still doing incredible things. And we're just getting it wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. And God does this stuff despite us sometimes rather than because of us. And sometimes what we can do is we can see those mistakes that the church are making that other people are making, those TV evangelists or those other churches or those people in this church or whatever it might be, and we can become quite irritated by it. I remember Rachel and I, were in, um, we were in America quite early on in our relationship together, and we were watching, and we ended up, ended up watching some Christian TV channel, and there was this woman there with the ridiculous amount of makeup on and outrageously big hair, and she was on a trip to the Bible, to the Holy Lands. And she was around Jericho. And she was talking about what Jesus had done in Jericho and, and all the amazing things. And when he taught, and she was going, and this, you know, and, and, and she said, and this fig tree here, this could be the one that he cursed. I kind of went, no, probably not, actually. Because, because if he cursed it and it stopped bearing fruit, it's probably not survived 2,000 years. So... Probably isn't that one. And you're just watching this stuff going, oh my goodness, you talk such rubbish. And, and you get quite irritated by this stuff. And then, you know, there's this thing running on the bottom of the screen saying, give money. And all these people give you money to this thing. And, and you kind of go, oh my goodness, is that really what the kingdom of God's supposed to look like? I get really irritated by Christian TV channels. But I can't deny that people have been saved by them, by hearing about God through them. Like, God uses it which is a source of immense frustration to me. <laughs> like, if God could just use it when, like, the people who were right, like me, and had everything sorted. Like, if God could just work within my parameters of what he wanted to use, and, you know, that would be so much easier. And, you know, we can become quite frustrated or irritated, and sometimes when we see other people making mistakes or getting stuff wrong or failing or saying stuff that we don't like or doing stuff that we don't agree with, then what we do sometimes is we shrink. 
and we justify our inactivity. We justify ourselves not getting involved. We justify our own self-righteousness. Going, well, I'm not going to give. I'm not going to give money to that anymore because I don't like what they're doing with it. Right, okay, so God says, well, give to anything that you happen to agree with and happens to be in line, and, or does God just go, give, be generous people? Or we might kind of go, well, I'm not going to go to that anymore, I'm not going to attend that anymore, I'm not going to serve in that way anymore, I'm not going to be involved in that anymore, because, you know, someone said something or did something or behaved in a particular way or, or failed in some way, and, well, I'm sorry, but I just can't, I'm, 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 I'm going to withdraw, I'm going to reserve my right to not be involved now. I mean, congratulations, but you've shrunk. You've hardened yourself. I don't imagine there's a party going on in heaven going, look at that principled person withholding themselves from the kingdom on purely moral grounds. Like, it doesn't, that's not what we're called to be, right? And we can end up hardening ourselves because someone's done something wrong or reacted in a situation wrong. You know, this is a real area for me. This is something I had to work through in my life. You know, I come from a family where, you know, my dad was this church leader and big minister and would travel around. And my dad was a deeply flawed man. And as his son, I got to witness that on a fairly regular basis. I remember coming here, my first Sunday here. I've got out of Manchester. I'm down in the southwest, like, oh, what, you know? My own space. On my first Sunday here, five different people came up to me going, oh, yeah, I was saved by your dad's preaching. And you're just going, come on, seriously? Is there nowhere? Like, if you knew what he was like. But God used him, despite him. And God can use you despite you. The only thing that restricts God's ability to use you is your availability. Are you going to let God use you? Or are you going to take a righteous stand and withhold yourself? Withhold your time, withhold your money, withhold your relationships, withhold your joining in. You know, there's a phrase that does the rounds. You see it a little bit here and there. And it says, some people say the church is full of hypocrites. But it isn't. There's always room for more. <laughs> because we get stuff wrong, right? Sometimes we say stuff and it's not right. The stuff that I... I might listen back to stuff that I taught five years ago or ten years ago, and I kind of go, oh, I probably wouldn't have said that now if I was teaching. Like, maybe I didn't get that quite right. But did God use it? The theology by which I was saved is probably not theology that I would necessarily teach, but God used it, right? My conversion was one out of fear and anxiety. And self-interest. But God used it. Don't think it was the perfect conversion. But God used it. We get stuff wrong. But God can use it. You know, Jesus will continue to save people by ways you cannot approve of. He will continue to use people that you do not approve of. Deal with it. 
this stuff that we see sometimes. And you hear about things. I remember the Toronto blessing. And there were some things that happened in and around that that were just not good. And yet, there are some things that happened in and around that that were amazing and life-changing and church-changing and community-changing. Well, how do we know? Which... And we like to have this sort of binary idea that something's either all good or all bad. And God's going to use the all good stuff and he's not going to use the other stuff. But the reality is just not like that. Which is good news for us. Because God can use our mistakes. God can use our failures. God can use our bad theology where we, where we cut and paste two part verses together and come up with an idea and then cast lots to decide what God was saying. Like God can use that. God can work with that. God can work with these guys who are stood in a room, hidden away, trying to figure out what's going to happen, scared, missing the point. And yet these are the guys that started the church. Without them daring to have a go, even though they were terrified, we would not be here today. It's very easy to write ourselves off and go, oh, yeah, I can't be involved in that because I'm not, you know. Those people can. I wish I was like the really good holy people. I wish I could do what they do. And I wish I... All we can... So we can write ourselves off because we don't feel like we're good enough. Or we can write ourselves off because we think like we feel like we're better. And we just want to criticise the people who are actually getting up and doing stuff. We want to criticise the people who are getting out there and getting their hands dirty and serving. We want to criticise those people who are actually out there evangelising or ministering or serving or working with. And we go, yeah, yeah, but they're doing it wrong. I wouldn't do it that way. Well, no, but you wouldn't do it at all, to be fair with you, would you? It's so much more comfortable to sit and judge, right? To sit in the stands and critique. God can't use us in the stands. But he can use us when we're in the arena. God can use us us when we get out there and give it a go. However many mistakes we make. You see, as we said last week, this isn't just a story we were invited to believe in that happened 2,000 years ago. It's a story we were invited to participate in now. There's no point for sitting there on a Sunday morning singing songs about stuff that we believe in. We're called to join in, to participate to be involved, to give, to serve, to love, to give it a go, to get it wrong, to make mistakes. And when we've made mistakes, not to shrink and hide, but to get up and go again. Because this is the history of the church. Do you know, we can talk about church history and it's not glorious and beautiful. It's problematic. I think it's fair to say Christians haven't always got it right. But we can still stand up and give it a go. We can still invite the power of the Spirit to inspire us and call us out. You see, and this isn't just a story we're invited to believe in, it's a story we are invited to participate in. And not just the holy, all of us. 
everybody gets to join in in this kingdom. The not good of us and the nobodies and the people who've screwed up not just once or twice but four or five or six times. And historically in church we've been very good at writing people off because they failed in some way. They messed up in some way. They got something wrong. And we write them off. But what we see in the Bible is these people giving it a go and giving it a go and giving it a go. We see Jesus forgiving Peter three times. We see Jesus inviting us to forgive people 70 times, seven times, which isn't a specific number. It's an idea of just abundant grace because we are invited into an abundant kingdom. We're not just recipients of the kingdom. We are activists of the kingdom. The kingdom isn't just there for our benefit. We are there for the, as part of the kingdom for the benefit of the whole world. And not just the holy ones or the ones who are paid to do it, but all of us. We aren't just beneficiaries of the kingdom. We are catalysts and carriers of the kingdom. Not just some of us, but all of us. We are invited to live in this story of abundance. We are invited to join in and participate. And the only thing that stops us, the only thing that stops God using us is our lack of availability, not our lack of ability. The only thing that stops us being part of this kingdom, living and flowing in the power of the Spirit, bringing life and hope to the communities around us, the only thing that stops us is us. And you might not be because you don't feel like you're good enough. Or you might not be because you feel like you're better than. But both of those shrink you. Let's be people who live in the abundance of the kingdom. Let's be people who live in this abundance of mercy and grace and love and beauty and forgiveness and joy and redemption and second chances because this is the kingdom of second chances. This is the kingdom of people who make mistakes and get to go again. So however much you think you've messed up, it is not enough that it would exclude you from this kingdom. It is not enough that it would exclude you from being part of this. However little ability you feel you have, however not good enough you feel about yourself, it is not enough to exclude you from being used by God. Because God uses the nobodies and the screw-ups and the people with really bad theology. God uses all of us. And the only thing that stops us is us. <coughs> Amen? Let's be people who join in. Vicky, do you want to come up and lead that response? Let's be people who join in. Let's be, and this morning... It might be that you have, this has challenged you because you feel like you felt for too long like you made that mistake, you got it wrong, you screwed up, you let everybody down. And God's this morning saying to you, but I can use you, come step back up again. And this morning might be an opportunity, however not good enough you feel, to have the courage to say, okay God, I'm in. And we'd love to pray with you about that. Or it might be that actually something's happened and someone else has done something and you have stepped back, you've shrunk, you've taken offense at something or you've, been, you've slipped into that 
place of feeling resentment towards someone or withholding yourself, not serving or not giving or not getting involved or not stepping out because somehow they've done something wrong. And this morning you need to repent of that and soften your heart and step into what God's calling you to do and we'd love to pray with you this morning. Whatever it is, whatever your story, whatever you're not good enough, whatever the thing is that shrunk you, we would love to pray with you this morning. So why don't we, uh, why don't we stand? And let's take a moment, whatever it is God's saying to you this morning. And if you want someone to pray with you, we'd love you to come forward. We'll have the ministry team here. If you need to let go of something and forgive, if you need to be forgiven, if you need to dare to believe that God can use even you, come forward this morning and we'd love to pray with you.